Welcome to episode five of Cultural Capital Podcast. My name's Andy Hazel and I'm here with Eloise Ross and Joanna Dimitia. And th- today we're going to be talking about Ghostbusters. We've been looking at Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship and we'll be wrapping up with our top three female-led action films. But first, to Ghostbusters. We have dedicated our whole lives to studying the paranormal. Now there's sightings all over the city. There are people out there that need our help. Holtzman, you're a brilliant engineer. Aaron, no one's better at quantum physics than you. We can provide a real service. So you probably noticed in our intro that we have an an extra critic today. Anders can't be with us, so we're joined very thankfully by Jo, who is a writer and critic in Melbourne. Um, you may have read her work around, and we're very happy to have her. So welcome, Jo. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Where would we have read your work? You would read me, I uh, write for Acme, and I've written for Kill Your Darlings, and The Big Issue, and Senses of Cinema. Right. And I've had a few bits of pieces in The Age as well. So you're going to be across all the stuff we're going to be talking about today? Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so it's been 30 years since Ivan Reitman's seminal film Ghostbusters became one of the biggest comedies of the 1980s, and it's after many stops and starts back in 2016 under the um, direction of Paul Feig. I think it's... Is that how you pronounce it? Feig? Feig? One of them. I have a feeling he'll forgive us. He seems like a pretty good-natured guy. Yeah. Uh, of course, anybody listening to this will know the layers of controversy that have been surrounding this film since it was announced, and the cast was announced, about a year ago. Uh, this is something that um, I think has fed very interestingly into the discussion of the film and into the film itself, which we'll talk about later. After it becoming the most hated uh, trailer on in YouTube history, what did you make of 2016's Ghostbusters? I really enjoyed this film. Um, I had such a great time watching it, watching the cast, watching you know the way kind of everything, even the extras, the special effects, the way that everything um, unraveled. I am like not a huge fan of the original Ghostbusters. I watched it as a kid and I enjoyed it. I don't have like, you know, deep memories or anything. Mm -hmm. And then probably about four years ago, I watched it with a friend, um, I think as a joke or just, you know, to revisit our childhood or something. And to be honest, I, I didn't really love it. I didn't feel a great connection with it. Um, but this new version I adored. I found it great fun. I loved... Basically, there's just something about these four actors, um, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon. They all look like they're having so much fun. And that was the number one thing I think I got out of this, is just watching those women have such a great time on screen um, is really kind of what made it a lot of fun for me. I don't think the script is perfect and I don't think the direction is perfect. Quite a lot of the jokes fell flat and to be honest I can't even remember any of the flat jokes to give you as an example because they just went straight out of my brain. Um, but a lot of it was funny and enjoyable and I just, yeah, I had a great time and the you know people in the screen that we were in loved it as well. There was a lot of vocal outcry of approval, wasn't there, Andy? Definitely, yes, particularly when any cameo came up. How did you feel about it, Joe? Were you a fan? Um, you know, I remember watching the original several times as a young person and, you know, loving it and then wondering when all of the hoo-ha came out about 
um, Paul Feig basically desecrating all of these fanboys' childhoods. Mm. You know, what the big deal was, it wasn't like he was remaking a Hitchcock movie or something like that. Um, I, I did watch it with a smile on my face pretty much from beginning to end. So I'm usually really lukewarm on the whole idea of a reboot or remake because... To me, not because I have any sort of emotional investment really in anything, but um, it's more, it just screams of a poverty of ideas in Hollywood. And so the thing I wanted more than anything when I walked in there was, please don't let this movie suck. And I'm happy to say that it didn't. I mean, just Mm. like you, Eloise, I loved watching those women um, performing and having an amazing time, and it just felt like a real female friendship movie in a lot mm. of ways, more than anything. There was a real chemistry and come, you know, camaraderie between them. That's a hard word to say. <laughs> and you get caught up in that. And yeah, yeah. I sort of had like a reverse nostalgia moment where, you know, I was literally just filled with the warm and fuzzies when they first emerged from the hearse with their proton packs on, thinking, wow, this would have been nice, actually, if I was a 12-year-old getting to see four ladies doing this. And then I thought about the films I grew up with, you know, watching things like Goonies and Indiana Jones, and it was all about boys, boys, boy boy gangs or men, you know, doing cool things. And, um, you know, it's, it's... nice that young girls get the chance to see that. Yeah, and seeing some of those photos now of, you know, young girls dressed up as Ghostbusters and meeting the cast, it's just heartwarming to see it that. It is. So. Yeah, I got that last year with the Star Wars reboot as well. Yeah. Just the sheer number of girls are walking around as um, Rey yeah, is pretty inspiring. Yeah, it's and it's so, you know, everyone is allowed to do this, and so it's so empowering and it's so special that that people are getting the chance. So Yeah, I rewatched uh, the 1984 uh, Ghostbusters the uh, the day before that I saw the film, and mm. I, the one thing that struck me was that a lot of the charisma that people remember, they remember Bill Murray being, like you know, his lackadaisical charm and the other characters, you know, kind of being built around that. There was never any discussion of the science or the technology. It was just assumed that proton packs worked and that it was, you know, it was, it was, that was something that I thought was quite surprising was that in that era of geeks and techs and it being, you know, the, the triumph of the geeks, you know, mm. in the 80s over the jocks and that sort of stuff, there was never any concession to anything other than just the image of a geek. So you had, you know, like Harold Ramis with his glasses nerding out and stuff like that. But in the 2016 version, there was, you know, a, like a, an attempt to explain stuff. So Kate McKinnon, you know, looked a bit like a geek, but also could, could talk for like, you know, a few minutes about what she was doing and what she was making and the theories behind what she was stuff. Even if it was a bunch of gobbledygook that was invented, there was at least an attempt to explain and to, to kind of build on the, the character that she was playing in, in a way that I thought was really interesting. Mm. Um, I am such a fangirl for Kate McKinnon. It's so good. <laughs> I feel like since she started on SNL a few years ago, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but it's been so wonderful and fulfilling to watch her. It just looks like she's having such a great time in her career and I'm so happy that she is where she is. I don't know. There's just some sort of connection. I cannot explain <laughs> what it is about her, but I love watching her on screen. She has such a good time in this movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think she's, you know, the star, the highlight, basically. She's the one of the, you know, one of the most sciencey of all of the scientists, um, you know, when she, like, you know, appears on screen with her feet up in, like, the, you know, I don't give a fuck kind of attitude, <laughs> posture. She licks the gun. Like, yeah. it's just all great. She's, yeah. she's really a star. I've um, definitely got a crush on her. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I just run a test um, on you guys? Can either of you name the villain from the Ghostbusters movie? 
No. No. Yeah, me either. The guy with the weird, weird facial hair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, did you think that was a problem? Like, th- that he was such a poorly characterised villain? I mean, I don't think so. It's kind of a cheesy premise anyway. So the fact that you've got this cheesy villain who um, sticks in nobody's minds. I mean, it's not really about him. It's about the ghosts and it's about the Ghostbusters. Um, and so he is kind of basically just the puppet master, but he doesn't really matter. I mean, in, in another movie, you know, he might kind of have more of a um, of a platform, but I don't think it matters. It's just a whole bunch of fun. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I agree he's, you know, completely unmemorable um, and that if I had to make a list of the film's flaws, that would probably be one of them, only that... You know, he doesn't stand out, mm. and maybe I don't even really fully understand what was going on there. <laughs> yeah, can anyone but, explain you know, what, what these ghosts do? I mean, they seem to bother people, the ghosts. They don't seem to... I mean, it was part of the charm of the 1984 version was that they just kind of muck around and be fun and a bit daft and cheeky. He seemed to be suggesting that, like him, they were people who had been bullied and ostracised and sidelined by society, and I now suppose, they were going to come back yeah. and make everybody pay. Well, I suppose if it was a different kind of movie, you know, the focus might be on you know, their struggle. Um, yeah. You know, but it's But we it's don't need really to care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. I did have a few, like, problems with the movie. I mean, as I said, it's not always funny. Um, yeah, some jokes fell flat. Some jokes fell yeah. flat. It is, you know, very good regardless and a lot of fun even when it's not very funny because um, it moves on even from, from... Even from the funny jokes, it moves on quite quickly. Um, I do just want to mention briefly... And I remember this from the trailer, the fact that Leslie Jones, the only African-American actress in the film, is a MTA transit worker and all of the others are scientists. And I was like, <laughs> really? Yeah, can, we, right. can we just like move on from this um, stereotype of, of you know, African-Americans being the uneducated ones or the unskilled workers? Because, you know, I mean, I don't think that that's in the film's agenda, but it was just kind of like a bit disappointing and then there's that scene where Leslie Jones is fighting off the fighting off Melissa McCarthy who's been kind of um, embodied by a ghost Um, this is quite early on in the film and she's fighting her off with one arm and then holding I think Kate McKinnon out of a window by the other arm to rescue her and I I just felt a little bit wrong to me a little bit off like there could have been a little bit more inventive or something about that um but she's very funny nonetheless she's very funny yeah she's a discovery for me i really liked her yeah 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 i'm obviously very glad that she's there but i felt like you know that was one of the script's flaws perhaps sure Mm. um anyway and one other thing actually this is like my surprise i had a problem with the film's awkward product placement ideas (laughs) like it was very obvious yeah i brought Everyone, not everyone, my two podcast friends, (laughs) a gift of salty parabolas. I have a a box of Pringles here, which we're going to eat later, because I'm sure listening to people eat Pringles is not um, very fun and entertaining for everyone. But salty parabolas. Yeah, but it was just like so obvious where, you know, it cuts to Kate McKinnon and she's got like a box of Pringles under her arm. Then there's uh, a few other instances, I can't remember. And then there's an aerial shot of Manhattan at night and all the buildings, like, are, you know, the city's in darkness, obviously, but the yep. buildings are lit up. And the only building with an, a logo is with H&M. 
Mm. And I was just like, it's just, I'm sure that's not what man. No, and yeah, like there's a massive ad for Singtail beer as well, I noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, building. I know these happen, but they just weren't done very well. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that was one of my kind of problems. With one of your bugbears. One of my bugbears. So yeah. did you see it in 3D? No, I didn't. Oh, no. okay. Right. I was going to ask you about special effects and whether, and whether you thought, and how you thought they compared to the older the version from the 80s, which was kind of cutting edge special effects for the time, but even then. It was still a touch cheesy. Yeah, I think these were better technically. Mm-hmm. I thought they were yeah. really good because they yeah. didn't, um, you know, they didn't try and announce themselves as being anything super impressive or or anything. And Andy and I saw it in three D, and I really liked it. I thought it was very low key. You know, it didn't try and do mm-hmm. anything. It didn't try and make itself something that was not. Yeah, there were a few notable instances of it use, using the three D to uh, to great effect. You might remember an early scene involving vomiting. I do, yes. Yes, in yes. 3D that... Sure. It was yeah. even more. I think I um, think that got a jump out of me. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah. The kids will love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I I was very happy. I was reluctant to go in um, when we found out it was in 3D. I was grumbling, um, but I enjoyed it as a 3D experience. Mm. So, you know, I think if you're going out there to see it and you can see it in 3D, it's one of those ones that, that won't disappoint. Yeah, yeah. Um, and something else I wanted to touch on was um, the use of New York. In the original version, um, you had this really, really interesting view of New York City because usually when you had comedies there or, the, or action movies, you saw a very discreet part of Manhattan, maybe, or you might see some, you know, certain mm. parts of certain, like a lot of classes and cultures will be omitted. But the 1984 Ghostbusters actually kind of revels in the diversity of New York in that time, and it kind of makes a virtue of it being grotty, disgusting, grimy in some parts, and incredibly posh and nice in others. And this, I was interested to see how they were going to t- deal with 2016 New York, and it did have a similar sort of view, I thought, although it didn't have quite the diversity, perhaps because New York or Manhattan isn't quite as diverse now, now as it was back then when it was mm. still coming out of the crazy time it was having in the 70s where swathes of blocks in Manhattan would have the power cut on a regular basis and there was endemic crime and crack was was everywhere. Yeah, yeah. They did do that quite well, though. Like, there was a distinction between places. You know, it started on the Upper West Side and then they got their, their place in Chinatown um, and they always announced sort of where they were. So, mm, you know, it did, yeah. they crossed the city quite a lot. Yeah. There seemed to be a comment on rents being too high. Yes. When they yes. wanted to go to the firehouse and yeah, 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 and also just notably, there was there were quite a few comments, probably included, you know, after the announcement of the cast yes. and the concept, there were quite a few comments, you know, kind of um, scathing on the dude bros who decided that they that they were allowed to hate on the concept, um, you know, comments about internet. YouTube comments yeah, and, yeah. and whatnot. So I Don't thought that was them. Yeah. very clever and you know very necessary. Um, and good on them, mm. yeah, for just saying fuck you to to everyone who. Yeah, I thought that was really smart. Yeah, I yeah. quite like the moment um, when the villain whose name we can't remember <laughs> takes form as the giant thing, big ghost, <laughs> and they all aim their proton packs Stay basically at yeah. his groin. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that was nice. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> nice touch. Yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So we're giving a pretty resounding thumbs up. Absolutely. Resounding thumbs up. There's no good reason not to go and see it. Yes. Seems Lady Susan will finally visit. Lady Susan Vernon. That woman's a fiend. Congratulations on being about to receive the most accomplished flirt in all England. Excuse me for arriving this way. What a delightful family pose. Mrs. Cross has come with me as my companion to pack and unpack. 
And as there's a friendship involved, I'm sure the paying of wages would be offensive to us both. My brother-in-law is very rich. In one's plight, they say, is one's opportunity. Sir James Martin, vastly rich, rather simple. How jolly. Tiny green balls. What are they called? Peas. Now we're going to discuss and review Whit Stillman's new film, Love and Friendship, which is out in cinemas in Australia on July 21st. Um, so this is, you know, a highly anticipated film from all Whit Stillman fans and possibly all Jane Austen fans as well. Um, this is uh, what we've all been waiting for, Whit Stillman finally adapting a Jane Austen text. <laughs> um, so Whit Stillman has adapted this from an unfinished epistolary novella written by Jane Austen um, sort of before she got to a lot of her, her main and more popular books. So I think she wrote it in the 1790s when she was maybe about 19 or 20 wasn't released until after her death so I think and it was yes so I don't think she was very happy with it basically is is um the the general idea um not a lot of people have read it it kind of has never been very announced or well known and never been adapted before unlike so many of her other works in my opinion it is actually a, a premium Jane Austen story and text um and I'm very glad that it's finally being made into a film so it's the tale of a shallow and devious widow, Lady Susan, which is the name of the original novella, who stays with her, who goes to stay with her husband's brother's family while trying to secure a new husband, who in her sights is her sister-in-law's brother, much younger than her and so disapproved of, and very easily influenced by gossip and the counsel of Susan, which makes for a very entertaining story. I adore this film. Um, but I have plenty to say about it later. But I just thought, Joe, throw it to you. What did you think? I adored it as well. Um, this, if Ghostbusters is sort of the definition of a blockbuster fun, this is you know an art house romp. Really, mm. um, it's delightful and um, delicious. Really, from beginning to end, um, the dialogue, much of it lifted directly from the novel, plus many original Stillman lines, is very sharp, very witty sometimes barbed um, and it all sort of coalesces in a fantastic performance by Kate Beckinsale who is an actress I've never really had a lot of time for mostly because she hasn't been in a lot that's been worth watching um, since sort of early in her career mm. and you know one of those films was Last Days of Disco with um, Chloe Sevigny and she's just amazing in this um, she just seems to be reveling in what she's doing and she delivers every line perfectly. Mm. Um, I feel like this is the role that she was born to play. Yes, I know yeah. that's a bit of a cliche to say, but I, the same, was never really sold on, on Kate Beckinsale. Even in Last Days of Disco, which is a film that I adore, I never really took much notice of her. Having seen Love and Friendship, I went back and watched Last Days of Disco and I have now completely flipped and I think she gives an extraordinary performance. But yeah, she just is a st stunning actor in this role and definitely makes it her own. I can't imagine anyone else being in it. No, me either. No, she's such a fantastic character, Lady Susan. I thought you, I could probably have seen a bunch of other actors doing this because, I mean, the lines, the dialogue, the outfits, the hair, the buildings mm. that they're walking around, everything's just so fantastic and so beautifully put together. But, um, yeah, there is something she inhabits this role in a really, really powerful way, I think. Yeah. She's, um, 
I mean, the de- the deviousness, the, the, the just the, how well the lines are crafted. I'm, it, I'm amazed that this hasn't been adapted before, actually. Yeah, I don't think it was very well known, and po- possibly there was, you know, some sort of stigma around the fact that Austen herself didn't much like it, probably. Um, but yes, it's it's excellent, and actually, I saw the film before I read Austen's novella, and I think that um, Lady Susan is such a great character. Like she's so deliciously amoral, um, and you can just see her kind of. I don't know, when you read into, try and read into the way she, um, you know, indicates her emotions, I don't know whether she knows that she's being devious or whether that's just, like, she completely has no idea and she is, in fact, amoral because she she just thinks that she's always right. Um, <laughs> but there's some glee in it. In the, in the novel, because it's epistolary, you can kind of, you can tell definitely that she has some scheming going on and she actually seems like, a much meaner character in the novella. Yes, um, yeah. But in the in the film, she's just so you know charming that you um, can't help but be beholden to to her words. You see less of what's going on behind the scenes because mm. you know, without spoiling it for people, she has a master plan that she's yeah. enacting. Mm. And when those pieces fall into place at the end, it's um, it almost catches you by surprise. Mm. I have to mention as well Chloe Sevigny, who just gives a, a really wonderful performance, and I found a lot resonating in their chemistry in this film and mm. their chemistry from Last Days of Disco. It's their first, um, you know, their first reunited film since then, um, and a lot of similarities. Maybe you have to kind of go a little bit far to find the similarities but I found some in the performance in the characters in the you know the um the way that the stories are structured so yeah I actually found more in common with Metropolitan which Mm. I which I absolutely love I think it's a wonderful film also about people walking into three beautiful houses with sparkling dialogue and having these you know analyzing analyzing these relationships well that's yeah they all Whitstorm and Storms are kind of like that (laughs) Metropolitan is is more directly related to Austin. Um, so, yeah. But I always feel like I should have a very dry martini in hand <laughs> when I watch one of his movies. Yes, yeah. mm. well. I feel like not? it's, it's <laughs> wrong not to watch them on Criterion Collection. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, but I also thought there was, a, there was across the board, I mean, we, haven't, we haven't even mentioned Tom Bennett yet, and what a discovery oh, he is. That's he incredible. He's just so good and so amazing, and I believe that Whit Stillman kind of upped his role a little bit uh, maybe not not dramatically, but once Tom Bennett came on and kind of embodied this character of Sir James Martin um, as his own and and gave him so much more dimension than than was written in the script, um, it really became his. And I think that everyone everyone who I've seen has been just bowled over by how great he is. Mm. I've just come from a Q and A um, with Xavier Samuel, the Australian actor, in it, in which he was interviewed by Clem Basto. And he also agreed that, that a lot of the, this film was written on the on the fly. There were extra scenes being added, which I imagine, you know, with a film that's already got a fairly tight budget, as a mm. what I gather is a fairly limited time like shoot, yeah, of, yeah. A, a, ability to access the buildings that they were shooting and that sort of thing. It, I imagine that would give it a sort of you know an, an energy to it, which I think you can see on the screen as well. If there's like you know saying, oh, your character would probably do this, or we need to shape you a little more like this and throw these scenes in. That seems to be what was also happening on Damsels in Distress. I think there was a, that was script was being written as they shot. Oh yeah, and so I can see, like you know, it would have been it would have been awful to have a much less of Tom Bennett in this. Oh, you I know, know, if, I they, know. They, if they actually did stick to a script that was pre 
you know, already written and approved by a studio and had all these sorts of other constraints. I just hope that he gets to be in more comedies now because I can't imagine not seeing him again. I'd like to see him discover peas one more time. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, So, yes, we're all giving a big thumbs up to Love and Friendship. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would also recommend going and hunting down the novel. Um, Maybe see the film first, but go and and read Jane Austen's novel. And Whit Stillman has also written um, a novel based on the film Love and Friendship. Um, And he's... Uh, so it's it's a comedy. Um, it's you know uses some of the same characters, but also has its own inventions in it. Um, so it's worth the read. It's called Love and Friendship, in which Jane Austen's Lady Susan Vernon is entirely vindicated. Oh, like the, that's what it said at the end of the credits. Yes. If you listen to the mm. soundtrack, so you know he's very he's very keen on the characters, and it's it's worth getting his perspective on everything. Well, it's a great point about the film, and I think what probably sets it apart from other Austens is... How funny she, it is. Have, well, that too, but also that she's just not punished for any of her misdemeanours. Yeah, she's not, that's right. And that's quite refreshing. It is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Way to go, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even in 2016, that's refreshing, and it must have been totally revolutionary in 1790. The ending was slightly different, but I think she still did manage to get away with most of it, didn't she? I think so. Yeah. I had real trouble spotting any part that wasn't written by Austen. Like uh, it seems so seamless, the integration of Wit's dialogue and much of it is. And I think, but I think that's why it's such a perfect match because I think he does write in a very Austen type way. Mm. Um, Do you think it would have been helped by a bigger budget? I think it was pretty stunning as it was. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be anything missing. Mm. Um, yeah, and the costumes were amazing. Oh, so. yeah, and the hair. Xavier Samuel gave us a, a tip that um, actually a lot of the hairstylists were using implements from the 1700s to do the hair of the actors. Well, that's pretty great. Which is like hot irons and fires and wrapping... I don't know, I imagine it would be something weird like that. Mm. But I was very surprised. It was a lot of hair. It was an awful lot of hair. A lot of hair. Mm. Method acting to the extreme. <laughs> okay, big thumbs up for Love and Friendship. Go and see it, everyone. <laughs> Okay, and we're welcome back to the last part of uh, episode five of um, Cultural Capital. We're looking at our top three female-led action films. There are quite a lot to choose from, and I'm very, very keen to see what you guys have chosen. Um, Joe, would you like to go first with your number three favourite female-led sure. action film? Uh, the third um, film on my list, uh, they're not really in any particular order, is uh, La Femme Nikita, or Nikita, which is an action film by... Luc Besson, written and directed by him, which came out in 1990. Uh, This is a story about a junkie who's recruited after she participates in a murder of a pharmacist um, to go and work for the government as a spy slash assassin. So it's a slightly convoluted premise. (laughs) Um, She's basically given the choice in prison of you will die or you will come and work for us. So we initially see the process she goes through um, of being trained, and there's a lovely cameo by Jean Moreau, who sort of teaches her how to be a lady. And then she's 
set loose into Paris as a sleeper spy. Um, she's got this kind of feralness about it and about her, and they harness that in this film. And it's it's a really interesting movie. Um, what I what I personally like about it is visual. The visual style is um, quite hypnotic, and an amazing use of color and mm. of music and quite moody and I guess very French um, but also you have a, a very complicated character for this female heroine she just doesn't go around she's you know she's a little woman with a big gun but she's also got a lot at stake um, and you you feel that and you feel for her and you're carried along with the story um, it's very it sort of was middling successful as a film in France and around the world but successful enough that it's been remade into two TV series yeah. in the States and was made into a American film called The Assassin, which starred Bridget Fonda, which was basically a shot-for-shot -shot remake. It also starred Dermot Mulroney and Gabriel Byrne. And I actually saw that film first before I saw the French, and it's it's quite good too. Mm. Yeah. Great. You know, I've never seen Le Femme Kida. I think I have seen The Assassin years ago, mm. but it's definitely been on my list. They used to have it on television all the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, my number three is a, a film. I don't know if you would like necessarily see it in in it, you know, an IMDb list of action films or anything. But it's just one that's always stuck with me. I saw it at MIF in twenty thirteen. I think um, it's called Jin. It's a Turkish film made by Ria Adem um, about a teenage woman played by Denise Hasgula who escapes life as a Kurdish freedom fighter. Um, departing her organisation without a word, she kind of just secretively takes off um, and, you know, goes off into the wilderness alone to, to combat um, life and try and escape and, and build a life um, sort of other to, to what she'd been raised in. Um, so it's kind of, you know, there's not a lot of action, but the, it is filmed or at least, you know, set in a war zone. So there's a lot going on around her when she leaves. She's kind of in this combat gear. She has a, a big gun on her, um, you know, so you can tell that she's definitely trained to be a big action hero, I suppose, if you wanted to put it that way. Um, but the way that she kind of confronts the landscape is really beautiful. She faces a lot of wildlife, um, even a bear. There's a scene with a bear. Um, but she just kind of, you know, she manages to, to survive um, on very little. Um, she lives off the land, you know, so it's really very beautiful. It's kind of, it's quite subdued. Um, and I think, I don't know what the message is in the end, you know, but it's just um, this... Um, I just felt like it was really beautiful and it stuck with me. Um, and there is a little bit of action here and there and you definitely can tell. And the, I mean, I recommend seeing it. I don't want to talk. I'm kind of hesitating because I don't want to talk too much about what happens at the end. Um, but it's, I suppose, ultimately it's more meditative, meditative than violent. Um, but really the message is, you know, that this woman or this young teenager goes off and, and sort of survives on her own. Um, so, yeah, that's my number three. Nice one. I've never heard of that. Sounds intriguing. Mm. Sounds good. Mm. Uh, my number three is the 2000 film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I think is a bit of a stretch for female-led because there are two females who kind of lead the film along with the guy, but they're the most memorable characters, I feel, from mm. this film. 
Um, even though it wasn't particularly pioneering, if you're familiar with a lot of you know Asian, um, sorry Japanese cinema, um, it did feel like you know for a teenager or somebody in their twenties watching it who wasn't that it was this completely new world with this totally thrilling, beautifully shot, um, kind mm-hmm. of almost languid story with these amazing action scenes. And um, Ang Lee, I think, really managed to capture a lot of the spirit of the of the two main girls, um, uh, Zhang Ziyi, who played Gen Yu, and um, Xiao Yeo, who played Yu Shu um, Lian, um, who is like a, a master um, in this type of martial arts. I'm not even sure what type it was or if it really exists, but it certainly looked like this amazing uh, mm. combination of capoeira and ballet and... Um, I think that since it's kind of captured a lot of imaginations around this time, I mean, it went through the whole art house route to become this multi-Oscar nominated kind of phenomenon, and then opened up the whole this whole world of you know Jet Li and all these sort of other people that came came through afterwards. But that one really, I think, stood alone um, in the story that it was telling and the way that it took its time, and it also featured a lot of beautiful landscapes. But mm. and sometimes you know the, the um, Gen Yu would feel kind of small against these, you know, steps of Mongolia or northern China, and then other times, you know, she was completely in charge of the frame. And um, it also kind of sh- t- took their story as well. I feel like from being these fairly simple characters, but then kind of fleshing them out over time and with their relation to like relationship to each other, and then to um, Chow Yun Fat's uh, character as well. Is that a film that you liked as well? Yeah, I haven't seen it since it came out at the cinema. Mm. Um, but it's stuck in my memory. I love it. Yeah. And I love the score. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yo-Yo Ma on the cello. Beautiful. <laughs> it's stunning. Nice one. All right, Joe. what was your number two? My t- number two is uh, the double header of Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, which were released consecutively in 2003 and four. directed, of course, by Quentin Tarantino. Um, this is also a martial arts movie, but it's another of... Uh, Tarantino's homage films, sort of blending martial arts, samurai, black exploitation, and spaghetti westerns. So the main hero of that is Uma Thurman's The Bride, who we find out in Volume Two is called Beatrix Kiddo, and it's basically a revenge drama um, uh, where she has been left for dead on her wedding day and sets out after waking up from a coma. I think four years later to seek revenge on the people who've put her there, which are all members of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, which she was also a member of. So it's basically a a series of revenge set pieces where she goes after each of these with a series of flashbacks, and they all have sort of different tones and styles to them. And the most striking of those, and the one that's never left my memory, is towards the end of Volume 1, where she comes um, face-to-face with... Uh, one of the members of the Deadly Vipers, uh, Oren Ishii, who's played by Lucy Liu. This is a direct homage to um, the film that I will discuss as my number one choice um, <laughs> called Lady Snowblood. I've just given it away there. <laughs> uh, and it's a stunning scene. Um, first, the bride makes a mess of the restaurant and, you know, in typical Tarantino fashion, you have an enormous body count mm. and extreme comic violence of a nature that really you don't see in real life. But then it's a showdown between the two of them out in the snow and it's beautifully choreographed and they've actually used the score from Lady Snowblood, Snowblood sorry, um, at that point. And this is one of the few Tarantinos that for me is very much like a shot of adrenaline. I just mm. remember it feeling extremely exciting the mm. first time I saw it. Yeah, great. 
my number two is Cat Baloo from <laughs> 1965. Um, now, you could, you know, criticise me for choosing this because I probably, it, although the film is called Cat Baloo and Cat Baloo is played by Jane Fonda, the main character, at least the person who, you know, won an Oscar for Best Actor in that year was Lee Marvin, who played two characters in the film. Um, anyway, it's great fun. If you haven't seen it, you probably need to see it and I won't spoil, you know, the, the twist of the characters for you, but um, it's sort of just so iconic as one of these westerns in which the lead character, or at least the film, was kind of held together by a woman, um, although Lee Marvin is kind of, um, had won the Oscar, I believe, you know, Jane Fonda is irreplaceable in this film. Um, it's kind of a spoof of Westerns, um, and here I'm kind of equating a Western with action film because, I don't know, they, you know, I suppose Westerns were kind of maybe an earlier version of the action film. Um, they did have a lot of action, you know, horse <laughs> racing instead of car chasing, um, a lot of guns, a lot of lassoing, and, you know, all of that jazz. So um, I do think that it is kind of an action film, um, and Jane Fonda is a woman who discovers her father has been murdered, so she kind of goes on this revenge, and it's also a revenge against, you know, a whole lot of men who try and abuse her um, sexually and via other, you know, forms of power. Um, the it's a, it's a great film. It's kind of bookended and also interrupted at certain times um, by a kind of a musical narration sung by Nat King Cole and Stubby K. Uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> they sing lines like, she has the smile of an angel, fights like the devil, Cat Baloo made her mind up to make this country bleed, the wildest girl in the West since Calamity Jane, which is also, by the way, a great action film starring a, a woman, Doris Day. Um, so, you know, she does a whole lot of great stuff in this film. She throws rocks, shoots guns in a hot red dress. She joins a gang. Um, she tells a bunch of men that they're not... Um, that she basically tells a bunch of men that they're old <laughs> because, you know, they don't want to do something. They don't want to rob a, a train, and she does. So um, it's really great. You know, there's a lot of... of um, stuff to look up to in here. But the reason that I kind of wanted to, to talk about this and highlight this is because I think that it's important to acknowledge the role that Jane Fonda and women before her, like Barbara Stanwyck and Joan Crawford, had in kind of creating this female action hero persona in the Western. Mm-hmm. Because really they they did a lot in terms of forcing themselves into the centre of stories and and creating such big on-screen personas and really, you know, leading that charge there. So uh, it's a good to be aware of that kind of thing and I really love and appreciate it. So Cool. Case yeah. made. Yeah. <laughs> um, my number two, I won't speak, uh, bother uh, talking about it for too long because I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening to this and you guys have probably already seen it. Um, it's another film that's a, turned out to be a blockbuster that got a lot of flack for starring um, a prominent woman and that is Mad Max Fury Road. Um, because uh, people had a lot of problems with this because the title was kind of deemed to be a lie in the beginning and that it wasn't really about Max and he was reduced to being like a, a stump for her to rest her gun on when she, it was a key <laughs> shot. There's a whole bunch of kickback on it uh, about it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I thought Charlize Theron was really a fascinating character when she was... Um, she, she was a fascinating embodiment of uh, Imperiata Furiosa. 
and and he seemed, and George Miller, the director, seemed to kind of smuggle her in from a, an anime novel that he was um, a book that he was going to write about her, and then kind of rewrote Mad Max to make it much more about her character. And so, quite a, like quite a lot of the other women in the in the list that we're talking about, uh, she kind of exists in this harsh, dry world, and she has there's little opportunity for her to be warm and to express all these you know typically feminine. Uh, you know, characteristics that would get too emotional. So she's kind of on this mission to be able to rescue five women who have been designated as breeders by this ruling warlord in this post-apocalyptic city called the Citadel. And she, she basically, the film is about her starting up a matriarchal society, which is an antidote to this barbaric bunch of warlike tribes that she's been born and, and known. And she's chasing this idea of this perfect utopian place, which is you know where she remembers seeing some greenery and some trees. And so it pretty much has this um, kind of possibly one of the most feminist <laughs> drives to any film of recent years. And the fact that it was such a colossal success and that so many people might have gone in you know, with sus- with suspicions like Ghostbusters and then come out totally entertained and totally um, on the side of Mad Max. I mean, and the, Oscar, the sheer you know, Oscar nominations it got and mm. the critical acclaim, I thought, was a yeah, total validation. Yeah, a great one. Good yeah. choice. Thanks. Now, tell us about Lady Snowblood. Lady Snowblood. So I've got a bit of a thing for samurai movies, and this is... An interesting one. Um, it's from 1973, directed by Toshia Fujita, and it stars Yuki Kashima as Miko Kaji. So she's actually born in a prison. So she has an interesting start to life, mm-hmm. and her family's been murdered and her mother has been raped. So she's basically born in the prison and raised to be an assassin and to avenge the deaths of all of her family. Um, what is so interesting about this film is that it's extremely beautiful to look at, a lot of the things happen in the snow, which is what Tarantino picked up on in that scene that I've talked about. Um, the blood is um, extreme, extreme quantities of it, like gazes, geezers of blood flowing all over the place. Um, and this, this is quite a contrast between these extreme acts of violence and Lady Snowblood herself, who is this very delicate, pretty woman who walks very quietly through the snow in lovely kimonos. Um, and her foes don't expect any trouble from her, but she knows how to wield her samurai sword like no other, and it's a sort of dainty little lady-sized one that she hides in her umbrella. It's also interesting because she's basically forsaken the life of a a so-called normal woman to live this life, and it's an interesting movie. It is. It's fascinating. I watched it a few days ago for the first time for preparation for this, and I was totally captivated. It was an amazing film. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I need to put it on my list. You should. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the the nature of the blood is hilarious. It's like this pink paint that kind of just explodes yeah. from people. Soon. It. <laughs> yeah. it totally looks mm. unreal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my number one is uh, probably one of the most important movies of all time to me personally. Uh, Tank Girl from 1995, <laughs> directed by Rachel Talale. Now, the reason that this is so important to me is that I watched it at about the age of 15 with some older friends at the time, and they'd already seen it and loved it, and they basically were like, oh, my God, if you love Björk, you're going to love this movie. Um, and I did. It's so good. I imagine that most people will have seen it already it's based off a comic book um it's kind of another one of these great australia's the end of the world films um i really love it so it's basically about tank girl played by laurie petty in a glorious performance and jet girl Naomi watts Mm. possibly her best role yet (laughs) um (laughs) 
And they're fighters, they're engineers, they're fighting to get control of a water reserve from an evil mastermind in a post-apocalyptic drought um, where they drive tanks and they fight dudes with physical and also um, intellectual um, tools, I suppose. Um, it's a just great fun. It's got super soldiers um, bred from human and kangaroo DNA. You know, like there's a whole <laughs> lot going on. It's ridiculous. It's it, but it's so good. It's very enjoyable. The performances are great. The colours are great. Um, Laurie Petty is a babe. Um, it opens and closes with like a animated kind of sequences. Um, the music, whole Björk Portis head. Um, I just love it so much. So I could watch this, you know, again and again. <laughs> anyway, Tank Girl. Tank Girl. Um, <laughs> the number one for me, I it was um, pretty clear cut, and that is Aliens by James Cameron, starring the Scorny Weaver as Ripley. Now, I couldn't, you couldn't really have a list without her turning up on it somewhere. It's true. I don't think. Um, the first movie, the Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979, was much more a horror film. I think it kind of played out one by one, people getting picked off by this alien on a spaceship. But then after a lot of um, problems trying to get the sequel done, James Cameron got uh, charged with it, and in 1986 he came up with this which is film, which is much more about like a war film. It's based partly on Vietnam War. It's kind of situated into this uh, spaceship. Um, so Ridley plays this woman who's far more experienced. She's stronger. She's um, much more powerful. She's uh, an activist as well. She's kind of fighting against the distant authoritarian figures that are charging her to go into this... Um, territory in which they're technical, technologically superior to to the the enemy there, but they're totally outclassed by because they're in such unfamiliar surrounds. But, she, but within this um, film that is so moves so quickly after the first half an hour of setting up this the scene, and there's this constant threat of terror all the time. He still manages um, Cameron still manages to put in this mother daughter relationship with where Ridley comes across a new this ten or eleven year old girl who she quickly bonds with. And there's also issues with transhumanism where there's this idea of, you know, she meets the android bishop and has this kind of, uh, you know, complex relationship with him. So he manages to put all these other fantastic situations in there, but overall Ripley just kind of, you know, exudes this power and charisma and energy that I think is hard to be matched by anybody in any action film anywhere. (laughs) That's an important one to have on there. Mm. She's the benchmark. Yeah, Yeah. she is. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty unbeatable. All right. Well, that's us for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you again for Cultural Capital Episode 6. We'll be talking about myth. Yes, there'll be a lot of myth in your ear holes for the next (laughs) couple of episodes. Something to look forward to. Yeah.